Welcome to the Journey's Edge podcast. I'm your host, Christian Bao, leading technology and research at Notion Theory. And on this episode, I had the opportunity to interview Richard Lamb on a recent research paper he published titled, quote, Virtual Reality Laboratories, a way forward for schools, question mark, end quote, which attempted to investigate what barriers existed to content learning and immersion when a hands-on science laboratory, a physical learning environment, was replaced with a virtual reality science laboratory, a digital learning environment in a large university system. Richard is currently director of the Neurocognition Science Laboratory at East Carolina University and also serves as an associate professor in East Carolina University's Department of Special Education, Foundations, and Research. He has an extensive background in all manners related to the science of learning, and his current research focuses on the identification and measurement of cognitive processes engaged while using technology in educational environments, particularly in science education. We started our conversation discussing some of the questions and prior research that led Richard to this particular paper, results from a meta-analysis about technology performance in education, and touched on the integral value VR provides as a soft-to-failure environment for education. Let's listen into the conversation. So in this paper, you were particularly interested in investigating the barriers to content learning and immersion of a science laboratory in virtual reality. Uh, now, I imagine the science laboratory theme was chosen because presumably it's one of those areas where the unique affordances of virtual reality can compensate for uh, concepts, theories, or experiments that are potentially too cost prohibitive, unsafe, or just out of scope to do in a classroom. Uh, what, what were or what was the, the particular motivation for this study at large? And were there any interesting insights from prior research that you or others have done that led you to kind of the questions you put together in this paper? Absolutely. There were a number of prior studies we did that kind of set the stage for this study. The first few studies that we started looking at, we just got curious about what was it in VR? Was it the 3D experience versus the 2D experience that really created the difference or what aspects of VR allowed us to actually learn, well, what I perceive to be learn more efficiently. And so we started with just a basic question of what is it? Is it is it fluidity? Is it the immersion? Is it the 3D nature? Is it the 2D nature? And so we started to look across the literature to try to understand this. My background actually started in serious educational gaming. And one of the questions that always comes about is why is the technology better than doing something kind of just in a normal face-to-face -face approach? And what we found when we did the meta-analysis is that technology definitely outperformed, or the use of technology, let me rephrase that, definitely outperforms kind of standard approaches in education. However, what, what we found with the serious educational game piece was that three-dimensional environments tended to allow and engage the students more optimally than kind of these, these flat 2D simulations. And so that was kind of the beginning of where we started to question what could this new thing at the time VR really bring about for us. As we started to do that, one of the other questions that came about is how can we, you know, one of the big things about virtual reality that allows us to experiment and do things is that it's a, a, a soft failure environment. 
And the soft failure environment was intriguing to me because if you watch a kid play a video game, they, they do a great job. They'll, they'll play the same level or the same content a hundred times trying to beat this particular aspect, right? And for whatever reason, they never get bored. But if you turn around in a classroom and you ask a kid to do a hundred math problems, all of a sudden it's like, okay, I got to do a hundred math problems. Why would I bother? Right? So we wanted to actually kind of tap that piece. And so one of the issues that was going on is teachers are often exposed to classrooms kind of not before they're ready, but before they have all the tools in their toolbox to kind of work with students, particularly if the students are of different ethnic or racial backgrounds, uh, different socioeconomic statuses, you know, kind of the list goes on and on. Because most teachers, if you think about who our teachers are, they're often white women in their early 20s coming from a, a higher SES um, environment and oftentimes don't share the experiences that their students have. Now, that's not every teacher. I don't want to paint with a broad brush and say it's like that for every teacher. But the majority of teachers that we, we train and teach come from that background. So one of the questions we began to ask at my universities is how could we expose teachers to students who are different than them, give them a safe space to practice and learn how to interact with students? And my initial thought was, well, we could use a VR environment. And, and the best part about that was the students, oh, we already have that. We have, we have another, uh, we use something called Teach Live, and this is the environment we use. I said, oh, great, let me, let me check this out. And what they did is they, they brought me into a room, and they had a flat computer screen in front of me, and a bunch of like avatar kids on the computer screen and a camera, kind of in the same way that you and I are sort of talking now. And you could interact with them. They did a great job. I mean, th there's nothing wrong with Teach Live. But I, I became dissatisfied with it because what would happen is as soon as I looked away and just kind of looked off into the distance or did something else, the immersion was broken. So I was like, okay, well, let's create a new environment. And so I started to recreate the virtual reality environment of the classroom to kind of address this problem. And one of the things that really struck me is that we had a, a, a person from the news come and kind of say, hey, what are you doing? And she said, well, why ask the standard question? Why is this different than what, what you're normally doing? I said, well, it's just different. I can't explain it. It's just different. And she's like, well, I can't write. It's just different. I have to understand. I said, well, hold on. Let me, let me put you into the environment. And then maybe you can explain to me. You're a writer. You, you can use the words more effectively than I can. And so she put it on. She sat in there. And you could see uh, one of the scenarios we have, we have the students kind of get into a verbal altercation with one another. And you could see her physically tensing up. You could see her kind of pull back and very surprised at it. And so she kind of navigated that situation, took off the headset, and they said, well, so what do you think? Why, you know, what is it about VR that's, that does it? She says, you know, it's just different. And she couldn't articulate it, but she said, every part of me felt like I was in there. And I felt completely engaged with that. And it felt like, and I couldn't just turn away. And so I had to be there and I was there. And so that's what really pushed that. So what we started to do from that is we started to build these neurological studies, looking at things like uh, functional neuroimaging, uh, and then looking at physiological aspects like heart rate variability, galvanic skin response, eye tracking, all of these pieces. And what we started to see is as we 
built these studies is that the students' responses in VR mirrored their responses in real life. And to me, that was amazing. So we truly had a soft failure environment that allowed us to create the same kind of cognitive, affective, and physiological responses that we would get in real life. But, you know, if I got upset in VR or did something wrong in VR, I wasn't hurting anybody. And that's always of a huge concern in education. If we have a, a student teacher who maybe inadvertently does something wrong, they could hurt somebody or upset somebody or create an issue. But in VR, none of that was a problem. And so we have this environment now that allows that. Fast forward to looking at how learning came about, like what kind of learning things. In a parallel track, we started to look at this idea of how VR promotes critical thinking and writing. And so we took, um, and where this came from, this is another story. Uh, we had a, a, a young child in VR and she was very excited about dinosaurs. So we had a, a VR dinosaur environment. And we put her in and you're in this kind of, you know, Jurassic type environment. And when I was in it, I was shocked at how large the dinosaurs were. And what I didn't think about for her is when, I, when we put her in the environment with the, with the, the um, dinosaurs, she just froze and she's just looking up. And we're kind of staring at her and we're like, is, is she okay? You know, what's going on? And all of a sudden tears started coming down outside the glasses. And so, so we took him off and we're like, you know, we're, we're talking to her. She's just little, you know, but what's wrong? What's wrong? And she just, she couldn't explain, but the dinosaurs were massive to her. And so, but the thing that was interesting is when we did all this with the other children, we're talking six months, 12 months later, when we followed up with the kids, they were still talking about it. And this is little kids who very detailed memory. I mean, so it was impactful for them. And... We So we followed up and took some older children and said, okay, well, let's write about the experiences. And what we found is um, that the writing was much more articulate. It was much more detailed. There was clear connections to the content. It was maintained over long periods of time. So there was definitely something about the experience. And so, you know, in a long story to, to a short question, um, we... You know, that was kind of what drives us in thinking about VR for this paper. One of the motivations of this research, as Richard gets into, is that a lot of prior literature looked at science education and learners' attitudes towards immersive content. But he wanted to explore beyond the tip of this iceberg and understand how these attitudes towards immersive content and the barriers the technology presented changed when VR was implemented as a core teaching implement over the duration of a full semester in a science classroom. Let's jump back in. And I guess um, some, something you were kind of touching on earlier, I, th I think with the, with the news story and such was, um, you know, in, in the paper you, you had mentioned that, uh, that there were uh, quite a few studies that previously looked at technologies related to VR and its effect on science education. And so this was across areas including uh, conceptual change, laboratory work, science inquiry-based learning, et cetera. Um, but um, you, you'd mentioned that they, the results of those studies were fairly limited to illustrating the learner's attitude towards VR, covering things like satisfaction or perceived usefulness. And so they didn't go as far um, as what you did in this study where um, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, the, for the study, the aim was to incorporate 
immersive content in the science classroom through the use of a virtual reality science laboratory. And uh, it was uh, 12 faculty and 285 students, and it was part of a pilot program. So I think comparatively to the other studies that were mentioned in the paper, which kind of looked at the learner's attitude towards VR, in this particular study, something that's interesting is you actually went through incorporating um, a VR science laboratory into an existing uh, class and then seeing that throughout the um, scope of this semester? Yes, absolutely. So a, lo a lot of the other papers, and, and to be fair to the other papers, they were building kind of foundational understanding of the aspects of VR and, and what, what aspects were important. But you're right, they, they didn't necessarily take it to the next step, which was, okay, we have these foundational factors that we think are important, you know, this emotional component or this conceptual change component, really these, these pieces here. But where they kind of maybe needed to take the next step was actually looking at, well, what does it look like in what I would call the naturalistic environment of the classroom or integrated into a classroom? And that piece, I think, allows us to understand how VR changes from kind of these individual uh, little experiences, or you know, even in both cases where I was giving you examples of, of the experiences, those were still individual cases where they weren't necessarily required or needed, they didn't need to apply that knowledge beyond just that little that that initial experience. So in this case, yes, we, we had a number of faculty and a, and a fairly large number of students who had the opportunity to comment on the experience and to actually think about how we could apply VR for them as a learning tool. I mean, a lot of these students were, um, either going on into other classes where they were going to be, where the, these labs acted as foundational components for other classes, or they were interested in moving into professional realms where laboratory classes were a, a fairly large portion of what they did. And if I can just um, ask real quick, so so with the the VR learning, uh, excuse me, the the VR science laboratory inside the classroom, um, was the VR tret as supplementary, and and so they were still using a real, say, wet lab, or or was the intention of the pilot program to actually replace the wet lab with the VR science lab? So that's a great question. So in, the intent of the pilot program was actually to see if it was possible to replace a wet lab with a VR laboratory. So one of the problems, and this is actually a pretty big problem that universities have in general, is, for example, in a biology, like a, a general biology or a general chemistry class, you get a huge number of students. And so you can set up a lecture hall with 200 students. That's not that difficult to do. But when you start to think about laboratories for those students, you can only have them so large for a number of reasons. Um, and on top of that, the cost of materials associated with that becomes kind of astronomical as you, as you think about all of that. So in thinking about this, the faculty were actually considering, okay, we have students who can get the wet lab experience later on in what they're in their educational opportunities. And then we have a group of students who need the wet lab experiences now. So let's take the students who need the wet lab experience now and allow them to have that experience now. Let's take the students who perhaps later on can experience wet lab uh, opportunities and put them in these virtual labs to see and kind of look to see if there's comparable aspects behind them. Now, what was interesting about that is that when they did this, there was a lot of students who wanted to actually switch places. They were either upset that they had to go into the wet lab or they were upset that they were going into the VR lab. And so 
we, we did not shuffle them and I actually was not responsible for the assignment of the students into either place. That's, that was pay grades above me. Um, but the, they were trying to address this, this gap that needed to be filled around giving every student a laboratory opportunity and making sure that they still had the resources necessary for all the wet labs. And so that's what this was intended to fill. Richard used a combination of multiple choice and open-ended survey responses to collect data in conjunction with participant interviews. Here, we touch on a few of the recurring themes from the results of the data collected and discuss a few implicit and explicit insights from the research findings. Back to the conversation. Okay, and so and so from that, um, you know, from from the results of the study, I, I think uh, you you had identified kind of six themes, and and they were these were kind of like common recurring themes because um, um, the 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 results of the study came from uh, multiple choice questionnaires, right? So so they went through the program, then after the fact, they then completed multiple choice questionnaires, and I think some um, uh, post mortem interviews, maybe. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So from here, there there were two points in particular that that were quite interesting to me from the study. One was explicit from the paper, and the other was implicit from a previous conversation you and I had. And so, the the first one was that you noted there was a common theme that emerged from the perspective of the instructor when they were being interviewed uh, regarding the technological skill level of the student in the VR environment with respect to their prior experience with online classes. So one of the things that actually really surprised me is that the students, when they, when we were talking about the experience and how well they were able to handle what they were doing, if they had prior experience in an online class, they, they seemed to be better at it. And if, if there was not that type of experience, actually the experience was pretty negative for them and didn't, they didn't do well with it. You would think you know, so so the, the fallacy that kind of got addressed in that was there's this idea that just because everyone uses cell phones or everyone uses tablets or whatever technology, you know, kind of daily, that they're automatically good at using any technology. And really, this shows that that's just not the case. Um, you know, I, I don't know exactly, you know, my thought process would be that, you know, there's specific things that you have to learn about that the VR mimics that would be found in an online kind of learning management system, you know, how to engage in particular response questions, you know, how to respond to particular questions, how to do particular things versus just where you're generally using a cell phone maybe to, you know, text or to do, you know, the various uh apps that exist around TikTok or, right, you know, those right, kinds of yeah. things. Um, and so those don't necessarily translate to skill sets that they can use in these VR environments. Okay. And then um, that, that leads me to the second point, which was, um, you know, when, when we were having a, a, a previous conversation, uh, you, you'd mentioned that was what was interesting from, from the study. Um, and I, and I actually think that, you know, this goes back to the fact of, of it actually being a pilot program, the VR being implemented in, into the classroom and actually being used for, um, you know, some standard of teaching. And, uh, you, you had, you had mentioned that this was kind of the reason why the, the response was seemingly so harsh was because the, the VR simulation was used in an actual science class that the university students were taking. And so the standard of perceived quality of that experience needed to be much higher because since this experience wasn't just for fun, they were trying to achieve specific educational outcomes. And so all the frustrations that they had um, with the software was was amplified as a result. Absolutely. And it's, 
you know, it, it becomes very important to consider when someone's paying money essentially to make use of these types of materials that the quality needs to be well beyond what might just be something that you give away as freeware or something to that to that effect. And so when they when the students perceive disconnects between the questions and the content that they were experiencing in the virtual environment or you know when they weren't able to pick up something and do something or manipulate a tool in the virtual environment or when um, there were cra- when the um, system crashed and didn't allow them to complete their assignment you know the, the various things that can happen with technology those frustrations became amplified essentially and that amplification really came out in kind of this negative view of the use of VR for laboratory experiences. And so as, as we think about how we're going to design these types of things in the future, because I don't think they're going away. I think, you know, ultimately they will be supplemental or, you know, particularly in the in the current COVID environment, um, in some cases they may be primary means for instruction, at least until things move in a, in a direction that allows uh, a little more face-to-face interaction. But the, the quality has to be considered. And one of the things that we found interesting in both the previous studies and this study is the students really want as lifelike as possible an experience. So if we're going to say that this lab replaces a regular wet lab that you're going to get face-to-face, that's still that face-to-face interaction or that face-to-face laboratory is still kind of the gold standard for the students in their both perceptually and potentially from a learning experience. So this VR experience better come as close as possible to that and they better perceive the utility in this VR experience, particularly if we're going to say as instructors and educators that this replaces something. Some important questions that came from this conversation and research was to what extent virtual reality should be used in a classroom? What considerations should be maintained when implementing immersive content learning with students? and the barriers still present in adopting immersive content learning for science education. Let's jump back in. So talking about where this research thing takes us next and where this kind of leads us, um, I think maybe to what you're touching on, do, do we then maybe presume to some degree that um, VR should be tread as something more supplementary as an educational tool, uh, that that it's not a zero-sum game and everything has to be replaced with VR, but we kind of use it for its unique affordances. And you know, if we go back to what you are mentioning with the lab, there's pr- particular cases where things are cost prohibitive or there's just you know not enough money in the budget to be able to scale the lab into something to do these large-scale experiments. And so maybe there's particular instances where you know there's a combination where the wet lab is used with the VR lab, but the VR lab, again, with the unique affordances, as you mentioned, kind of this consequence-free environment um, kind of complement what's being done in the wet lab itself. Yes, absolutely. And so, so to be clear, I, I'm a huge fan of VR and a huge fan of, of the various types of technology and particularly their use in education. But I would tell you, I would never advocate for the re- complete replacement of like a face-to-face lab. Uh, in my mind, the VR and the associated technologies and that are excellent supplements. They, they allow the opportunity to extend learning. They allow opportunities for students to engage outside of class. They allow, you know, there's lots of pieces and things that the VR will allow students to do. But we also have to be extremely mindful of kind of the wraparound of it too. So it's not that I can just stick the VR headset on a student and say, you know, go learn. I, as an instructor, have to still work with that student 
you know, working with the kind of the, the materials that they would normally get, have to kind of still plan out and structure everything in the way I normally would as an instructor, still have learning objectives, learning outcomes, assessments, those kinds of things. The VR is really a tool to help facilitate an experience is often how I tend to think of it. And and uh, just uh, just trying to remember, in, in, in this paper, the experience you used, um, that was that something off the shelf or built prior to it being used in the pilot program or was it built in conjunction with the faculty for the class um, and then kind of deployed for the pilot program? So this was built prior to the actual uh, implementation at the it, as part of the laboratory experience. Part of what, what came out of this, though, was a discussion with the company about things that they might be able to do better. Uh, this, this particular research was not done in conjunction with the company. This was done completely separate, but aspects of what we learned going throughout this pilot program were given back to the company for them to consider. So one of the things that we try to do is, as educators is we're often stuck in the situation of having to take something that already exists and kind of reshape what we're doing or reshape what it's doing in order to fit the classroom, uh, it, which is very different than kind of an, ed, an, an edu, excuse me, from an entertainment perspective in so much that education or uh, entertainment games often have, they don't have to fit a particular niche or they kind of blaze their own trail. Right. And yes, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And, and so the education often lags behind the entertainment piece. And so, be, because these are very expensive to build. And so, because of that shaping that educators have to do, you always don't, you don't always have a 100% fit to what we're trying to accomplish. And so that's where that wraparound and other instructional components need to come in to fill those gaps. Okay, so, so, so likely in the real world, this is something we won't get away from per se, where it's likely a case where most educators will need to find something uh, cost-effective off the shelf that they can kind of cater to what it is that they're doing. But in a perfect world, likely um, if we had the option, educators being involved, the VR experience is built for the specific modality and uses that they're using it for. Um, presumably the, the frustration would have been far less. And I, and I imagine that's probably where some of the frustration came from is, you know, in, in the pilot program, the students had some content the and the educator was trying to teach this content, but fit in the VR laboratory. The students were kind of being instructed with this prior developed content, didn't exactly match one-to-one -one with the VR laboratory. And so when then that was being kind of injected into the program, uh, because there was a, a slight discrepancy there between what the VR tool was capable of and what was actually being told or taught to do in the classroom. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and that, that I would argue, is one of the biggest areas of frustration, not just with this particular uh, VR experience, but when educators use technology across the board. Um, and so then that also compounded with some of just the functional components with that. I mean, the, the students were absolutely and understandably so upset about the, those disconnects that happen. And for a student, particularly when you're learning new content, those disconnects become very, very pronounced. It, it's different if you're an expert and you can kind of look past 
those disconnects because you have enough understanding of what's going on around you and what's in the content to look past those pieces. And so uh, a small hiccup may or may not mean that much to you. But for a student who's just learning the content and they were told, you know, we tend to think algorithmically when we first start thinking about and learning about doing things, when those algorithms don't match, it becomes a very discordant event for the te- or for the students. So that brings up a, a, a question with, with the learning that was in the VR experience. Um, was it uh, quite linear in, in the way that it was being instructed or, or was it more of a sandbox environment where they could just generally explore and then they were given kind of a, a brief objective to, to try and accomplish something in the VR experience and then come out of it? So that's that's actually a really interesting question. So I would call it a pseudo sandbox. Uh, and I know that kind of splits the middle. It was a sandbox in so much that they could kind of look around and like sort of pick things up and sort of look at things, but you couldn't really test it. And, and one of the things that we tend to think about, particularly in science when we're educating our students, is we actually want them to get the wrong answer occasionally because there's so much you can learn from getting the wrong answer. I'm, I'm using air quotes here. Uh, <laughs> For the, for the students because they can go back and they can think about, well, what might have caused this? What are some things that I did that maybe changed some parameters? There, there's lots of learning that can happen. When you're in a built environment, particularly where there is only a very, very, very limited number of outcomes, and in this case, it either did it or it didn't do it. There, there was no kind of, well, you can get this random answer here or this wrong answer there or that kind of thing. It, so there's really no ability to troubleshoot. So it's not sandbox in that way. It's more sandbox in terms of, you know, I could pick up a beaker and look at it or a pipette and look at it, that kind of sandbox, uh, which is very different, I think, than what you would get in kind of a traditional laboratory. Um, not that I advocate this, but, you know, when I taught high school laboratories, you know, you get the kids and they would just want to explore and, and touch and play and mix things together. You know, and I spent a lot of time making sure they weren't doing that in an unsafe way. But we did give them opportunities to explore. And that was my conversation with Richard Lamb. His research covers the important topic of immersive content learning in higher education. And I really appreciate how he and his team went beyond simply assessing the attitude of learners towards the technology. Instead, running a full semester length pilot in a science classroom with 12 faculty and 285 students. If you're interested in learning more about Richard's work, his team, and his lab, you can find those materials attached to this podcast episode. If you're interested in staying on top of the latest research developments in 3D, augmented reality, and virtual reality, please consider joining the Journey's Edge Discord group. Separately, if you are currently a researcher and would like to have your research considered for an episode on this podcast, please contact us. That's all for now. See you next time.